0: Have you ever noticed that uh, Jesus and Christianity seem to be always under siege? Jesus and Christianity seem to be always under siege, under attack. I wonder how that makes you feel. I wonder how you feel when you're watching the news and you hear about the rapid expansion of Islam around the world. I wonder how you respond when you hear other people use the name of Jesus sort of as a meaningless word just to call out when something goes wrong. I wonder what you think when our Christian arguments against, against the evil tragedy of abortion, when those arguments are simply dismissed by our leaders as religious rantings. I wonder what your reaction is when you read in the, in the newspaper about a bishop somewhere Claiming that what the Bible teaches about Jesus is really just an ancient superstitious myth. I wonder what you feel when you discover that the teachings of Jesus are regarded by the vast majority of the people around you as interesting moral thoughts that can be ignored whenever they get in the way. I wonder how you cope with the fact that your family thinks that your convictions about Jesus are ridiculous. I wonder what your response is when you hear about yet another book being released, yet another movie being released that attacks faith in Jesus. I wonder how you feel when you hear about the terrible statistics about the number of people throughout our world who are persecuted and oppressed and murdered simply for believing in Jesus. I wonder what you feel about all of that and more. I wonder how you react to all of that. Confusion. Sadness. Anxiety. Despair. It's easy to come to the conclusion that Jesus and Christianity are under siege in our world. And it's easy to come to the conclusion that Jesus and Christianity are on the way out. That we're on the losing side. And all of that is why our passage tonight is such a good one for us to spend some time in together. For in our passage that was just read for us, we're going to see two truths that will help us make sense of our world and its rejection of Jesus. Two truths. The first truth is that the Christ has always been under siege in our world. The Christ has always been under siege in our world. That's the first truth. The second truth is that in spite of appearances... The Christ overcomes the world and none can stand against him. The Christ overcomes the world and none can stand against him. So make sure you got your Bible open at 1 Samuel chapter 19. There's an outline of the talk in the middle of that bulletin tonight. And how about we pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Let's talk to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power and the truth of your word and we come to you father as people who are often confused and sometimes anxious and a little bit fearful of our place in the world and really father the place of Jesus in the world so often under siege so often under attack there are times father when we feel just a little bit embarrassed to belong to him when we feel like we're on the losing side because we belong to him And so we need to know the truth in these things, Father. So we ask that you'd help us tonight to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll point one on your outline. And in our passage tonight, it's David who is under siege. It's David who is under siege. He's under attack. But remember, this is what we've got to remember, that in 1 Samuel, David is not just anybody. David is not just a believer in the Lord. David, remember, since chapter 16, is the Christ. He is the anointed one of the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the one chosen by the Lord to be his king. And so in this chapter, we see not just David under siege from his enemies, we see the Christ under siege from his enemies. And his opposition is really centered in one man, Saul who at the time was the so-called king of Israel. In fact, in this chapter, Saul attempts to kill David four times. I wonder if you noticed that as it was read for us. Four times. The first uh, assassination attempt, if you like, is in verse 1. Have a look at it with me. Verse 1. Saul told his son, Jonathan, and all the attendants to kill David. It's a top-secret meeting of the court of Israel, and out of this top-secret meeting is issued an order to assassinate David. Clearly, like we've seen earlier, um, Saul had had enough of David's success in battle. In fact, if you glance back to the last sentence of chapter 18 that we looked at last week, the last sentence of chapter 18, you can see that David's name had become well known because of his victories. And Saul's jealousy and Saul's jealous grip on his throne could not allow David to live. And so he orders his assassination. However, as we keep on reading, we can see that first attempt, it comes to nothing. But a second attempt was not far behind. Jump ahead to verse 8 with me. Verse 8. Once more, war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force. They fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. Now, hopefully that might be one of those deja vu moments for us. You think, hang on, haven't we read that before? And yet, yes, we have. Chapter 18, the last chapter, it's almost an action replay. Even the harmful spirit bit is an action replay. In the same way that David had struck down the Philistines so that they had fled before him, Saul tries to strike down David so that David had to flee from him. And once more, This is the third time Saul tries to pin David to the wall with his spear. Assassination attempt number two. Attempt number three can be found in verse 11. Verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. See, even his house, even his home was no refuge for David. Being married to Saul's daughter, Michal, that was no refuge. This is the Christ who is well and truly under siege. This is the Christ who is opposed on every side. This is the Christ who is under constant threat. Attempt number four, verse 18. Have a look at it with me. Verse 18. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to to capture him. This time Samuel. Samuel is the great prophet, remember, of Israel. Samuel was the very one who anointed David with the oil back in chapter 16. But even his home, even the home of Samuel, provides no refuge for the Christ. It would seem from just this chapter that David had no place to lay his head. Wherever he went, there were men seeking his destruction. He was well and truly under siege. And it really reads like a Hitchcock suspense thriller, don't you think? Do you like Hitchcock suspense thrillers? Where it's one guy, and wherever he goes, he's under threat and there's constant uh, tension. He is a man on the run. And we need to feel the desperateness of the situation. We need to appreciate the strength and the danger and the persistence of the opposition. We need to imagine how how much David felt under siege like this. Although we can actually do more than imagine it. One of the really interesting, one of the really great things I reckon about these chapters in 1 Samuel that we're looking at these weeks is that um, a number of the Psalms that David wrote, and he wrote a lot, but a number of the Psalms that David wrote, he actually wrote in the middle of many of the incidents and stories described in these chapters. And these Psalms give us this great, marvellous, really, insight into the thinking of the Christ. So if you're clever, put a finger in 1 Samuel 19. You don't have to be that clever, actually. <laughs> don't be too threatened. Finger in 1 Samuel 19 and turn to the right and find for me Psalm 59. I'm going to give you a chance to, to find it because we're going to look at it a little bit. Psalm 59. Come with me there. Finger in 1 Samuel 19. You might have to stop taking notes. I don't know how clever you are at that. But anyway, Psalm 59 is where we're turning. Good to hear pages turning. Psalm 59, and if you look just above verse 1 of Psalm 59, you can see a title to the psalm, an inscription in the psalm. See the last sentence of the inscription? It says, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Okay, this is the psalm that David wrote concerning 1 Samuel chapter 19. And have a look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, deliver me from my enemies... O God, protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I've done no wrong and yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. Under attack, you see. Innocent yet conspired against bloodthirsty enemies, fierce enemies, a man under siege. Not just a man, though, the Christ under siege. But unlike those Alfred Hitchcock movies, this man's not alone, is he? He's not alone. Like we saw last time in chapter 18, the Lord was with him. David was not alone. The Lord was with him. And can you see there in this Psalm, verse 1, can you see it? in Psalm 59, verse 1, he cries out to God for deliverance. In verse 4, he calls upon the Lord to arise and help him in his plights. And as we can see back in our passage in 1 Samuel 19, the Lord answered his call. Because the Lord is with him. Because the Lord is with him, the Christ overcomes his enemies. In fact, that truth becomes clearer the further in we read of uh, chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. So come with me. You can take your finger out of the psalm. Although we are going to go back to it at the end, but, you know, I don't want to get, hurt your finger or anything like that. So back to 1 Samuel chapter 19. And what we're going to do is we're going to retrace our steps through chapter 19 again. What we did the first time, remember, was to look at the attempts on David's life. This time we're going to go back through and see, okay, how did the Lord, how was the Lord with David? How was the Lord being with David mean that no one could stand against him? So the first threat, Remember? Uh, from verse 1, well, that first threat is diffused seemingly very simply. Saul orders the, ass, the assassination of David, remember, in verse 1, and Jonathan persuades Saul against it. Pick it up in verse 4, verse 4 of chapter 19. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, "'Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine." The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. It reads like a very simple resolution, doesn't it? Uh, Saul has a conviction that he wants to kill uh, uh, David to see him assassinated jonathan seems to persuade him uh, against it but can we notice please together how unexpected that was three times in the space of four verses we are told that saul was jonathan's father saul was jonathan's father saul was jonathan's father and once we are reminded that jonathan was saul's son jonathan remember was the crown prince of israel Jonathan would have been expected, obligated, to stand with his father, King Saul. In fact, the common practice of the day of someone like Jonathan was to eliminate any contenders for the throne. That was just normal behaviour. And so Jonathan's decision to act against his father and to stand not with his father but to stand with David was extraordinary, really. Jonathan reminds his father of the good that David did when he killed Goliath that day. He reminds him that through David, the Lord had won a great victory for Israel. And he warns his father that if his father were to kill David, it would be nothing other than sin. It's a powerful speech. It's a gutsy speech. And we know it flows directly out of Jonathan's love for David, which we saw last time out of the covenant he made with David in chapter 18. But it is still extraordinary. It's still unexpected. It seems maybe a simple resolution, no big deal, but it is a big deal, you see. It is a big deal. And in Saul's decision in verse 6 to relent, we see nothing other than the sovereign hand of the Lord, the Lord who is with his Christ, who delivers him from his enemies. In exactly the same way, in verse 10, David's escape from Saul's spear was the Lord's deliverance of him. You could, I guess you could think, well, I, maybe Saul was just a terrible shot. You might think, well, you know, he's had three goes already. He's obviously a dud. But we're going to read 1 Samuel. Saul was a successful warrior in his own right. I'm pretty sure that we could have relied on him to hit a man in the same room with his spear under any normal circumstance. But these were no ordinary circumstances, you see. David's escapes, David eluding the spear, were due to the Lord's deliverance, the Lord delivering his Christ, answering the prayers of his Christ. And it was the same with the third attempt on David's life, this time, remember, involving David's wife and the daughter of Saul, Michal. Let me remind you what happened. Um, Verse 11 of chapter 19, verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning... But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michal said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. And Saul said to Michal, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? It's the standard ploy that you'll see in lots of escape movies. So Clean Eastwood did it in Escape from Alcatraz, okay? And maybe they stole the idea from Michal here, I'm not sure. You know, you use the dummy, put the dummy in the bed, put some hair on the dummy and people think, hey, it's you sleeping there and you make good your escape. I guess as we read it, we think, hang on, what was an idol doing in the house? We're not told. Maybe we think, was it right for Michal to lie to her father to protect David? The issue is not discussed. What is obvious, though, again, is that Saul cannot rely even on the loyalty of his children when it comes to plots against David. Their loyalty is with the Christ. And so, again, the threat against David is neutralized. You might think, how hard could it be for the king of the land to kill the guy? Very hard when the Lord is on his side. Just in case that you were doubting, you're thinking, well, yeah, I can sort of see it, but it's a little bit thin. It's a bit thin to say the Lord was delivering David. Just in case you're thinking, well, no, no, I actually think it was Jonathan's persuasion, Saul's bad aim, Michal's clever deception. Just in case you were thinking that the deliverance of David was more human than divine... It's almost like the fourth deliverance well and truly sorts that out. leaves us no room for doubt. Remember what happened from his home? David fled to Ramah, to Samuel. Perhaps he was seeking the prophet's protection, but Ramah was actually very close to Saul's home in the town of Gibeah, and his presence was soon discovered. The outcome, pick it up in verse 19. Verse 19, word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also prophesied. That's unexpected. Explain that one. Saul's men are overwhelmed by the Spirit of the Lord and the Christ is delivered. Just exactly what the prophesying is, we can't be certain. It's just It's just the word it uses, not described. It may well have involved singing songs of praise, which is how it's described in chapter 10. It may well have involved teaching the word of the Lord, which was certainly the way Samuel prophesied. But whatever it was exactly, it was inspired by the spirit of the Lord and Saul's men now serve the Lord and not Saul. And notice, see, there's no room to doubt now whatsoever as to who is doing the delivering. It's clearly the Lord. Saul's determined though, isn't he? Verse 21, Saul was told, told about it and he sent more men and they prophesied too. Saul sent a third sent men a third time and they also prophesied. This is when it starts getting ridiculous, isn't it? You're sort of thinking, come on, wake up, learn what's going on. But it gets even better. Verse 22, finally he himself left for Ramah. Maybe he ran out of men, we don't know. And he went to the great cistern of Seku and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night. And this is why people say, Is Saul also among the prophets? It's okay to laugh when you hear the Bible read. It's a bit funny, I think. The Christ is delivered by the Lord all of Saul's plots the king of the land all of his plots they come to nothing they're made even really to look ridiculous Saul is made to look ridiculous because the Lord is with David his Christ he is not with Saul he is with his Christ and therefore none can stand against him how did David reflect upon the outcome What was David's response to the events of chapter 19? Well, we're going to go back and you don't need to look at, we're not going to come back to 1 Samuel 19, so you can just turn, if you like, to Psalm 59 and let's see. Let's see in Psalm 59, David's, how he reflected on all these things. And let's look this time at the last four verses of Psalm 59. So from verse 14. David wrote this, verse 14. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. O my strength, I sing praise to you. You, O God are my fortress my loving god David knew you see that the Lord is with his Christ and therefore none can stand against him even when he is under siege the Lord will deliver him the Lord will be his fortress his refuge the Lord will vindicate his Christ that's the clear lesson of 1 Samuel chapter 19 but of course it's a lesson that resounds beyond David with with great volume like we saw last time and this is really important to grab too. in these stories of david the christ which last time we called little c christ in these stories of david the little c christ we are seeing and learning what it is to be the christ capital c in these events of david's life we are reading the anticipation of david's great ancestor the christ jesus David, remember, is like the balsa wood model of the real thing to come. And so in these stories and lessons of David, the Christ under siege, we are seeing and learning valuable truths about the Christ under siege. And so when Jesus came among us, born of the family line of David, he often spoke, Jesus often spoke of the Christ having to suffer. Because he knew his family tree. He knew the stories of David. He knew that the Christ would have to suffer. He knew that just as David was under siege, so would he be. It's the nature of the Christ. But of course, Christ Jesus was hated and attacked and opposed with an evil intensity that David never had to face, that David could not have imagined. Jesus the Son of God, the Word of God. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't even recognize him. He came to that which were his own, but his own did not receive him. The world hated Jesus. The world shunned Jesus. The world belittled Jesus. Even his family called him crazy. The religious leaders of the day said he was of the devil. People labelled him a pathetic joke. The people of the land forced him to move from town to town, from town to town. He had no place to lay his head. He suffered many things. He was rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He was betrayed into the hands of men who only wanted his blood. He was condemned to death. He was handed over to the Gentiles who mocked him and spat on him and flogged him. He was publicly humiliated. He was crucified like scum. And surprisingly, unlike David... He was not delivered from death. Jesus didn't elude the spear. Jesus didn't escape the soldiers. Hanging on that ugly, painful cross, it was not Psalm 59 that Jesus claimed, but Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from from the words of my groaning. Christ Jesus was not delivered from death, for Christ Jesus would deliver his people through his death. And with his arms outstretched on that cross, lifted up from the earth, he would draw all men to himself. On that cross, The sins of his people were placed upon him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was making atonement for our sin. But what of the lessons we learned of the Christ in 1 Samuel 19? What about Psalm 59? Was not the Lord with his Christ? Yes, God was in Christ Reconciling the world to himself. Why did not the Lord deliver him from his death? Well he did. But only after Jesus had won for his people redemption and forgiveness. After three days. Uh, God raised Jesus to life. God has indeed delivered his Christ. Christ a far more glorious deliverance than ever David experienced. God has vindicated his Christ. God has exalted him to the highest place. God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, remember our truths. The Christ will always be under siege, but the Lord is with his Christ, and therefore none can stand against him. The world hated Jesus, but he has overcome the world. And even though now Christ Jesus may still appear under siege, he reigns. He sits at the highest place. He has the name that is above every name. So you see, don't be afraid. Don't be confused. Don't be alarmed. For the kingdom of the Christ advances. His kingdom advances unstoppably. Did you know that right now, at this very moment, one-third of the world's population call themselves christian (coughs) did you know that that proportion is actually increasing every day as the number of bible believing christians not just nominal christians but bible believing christians evangelical christians the number of evangelical christians grows at a rate almost four times faster than the world's population did you know that despite the much publicized growth of Islam? the worldwide growth of Bible-believing Christians is actually twice as fast. Did you know that in Sydney today, far more people will have attended church than all the attendances of all the football codes have put together? Did you know that on a worldwide scale, approximately 1.3 billion people attend Christian services? Did you know that in the time you've been listening to this Bible talk, over 2,000 people have become Christian throughout the world. Did you know that? Don't be afraid. Don't be confused. Don't be alarmed. The kingdom of the Christ advances unstoppably. The Lord is with his Christ and none can stand against him. And yet the Christ and his kingdom will always appear to be under siege. Just like it was in Psalm uh, 1 Samuel sorry 19, so, so it always is. But we need to learn well the lessons of 1 Samuel 19. We need to learn well the lessons of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. The Lord is with his Christ, therefore none can stand against him. And when his kingdom comes, when Jesus returns, he will bring this age to an end and every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly. Every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, to Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In fact, you know what? The Lord sees those now, sees them now who mock Christ. The Lord sees those who belittle Christ, who dismiss Christ, who attack Christ, who persecute Christ. The Lord sees them all. And you know his response? You can read about it in Psalm 2 later. The Lord's response is, he laughs at them. He he scoffs at them. He mocks them. And the Lord utters a solemn warning to them. He says, kiss my Christ. Recognize my Christ. Submit to my Christ. Or you will be destroyed in your way. And the Lord would say to us, even us here tonight, so often confused and scared and alarmed by the apparent ongoing siege against Christ Jesus, the Lord would say to us tonight, again from Psalm 2, he would say, blessed are you who take refuge in my Christ. Blessed are you who take refuge in my Christ. And Jesus would say, the Christ would say, to you, his people, he would say, in this world you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Christ, Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We thank you, Father, that just as you delivered David but a billion times better, so you have delivered Jesus and exalted him to the highest place. And Father, we thank you that through your grace and your mercy, you have called us to him that we might belong to him. Father, we pray that we would understand how blessed we are to take refuge in the Christ forgive us father when we feel like losers for in fact father you have made us winners not because of anything we have done but because of all that Christ has done for us he has overcome the world for us father in him we can be overcomers and help us to understand that please and thank you that his kingdom advances unstoppably and father we look forward to that time when uh The rule of King Jesus, the majesty of King Jesus will be uh, clear to all. The hiddenness now, Father, of his power and majesty will become clear, unveiled. And we look forward to that time. And Father, we thank you that Jesus, the Christ, was willing to humble himself even to death on a cross that he might deliver us. Thank you, Father, that he was prepared to not be delivered until he had first delivered us. We can't penetrate to the truth of that, Father, the depth of that. It's enormous. But we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.